Well, uh, today, today we begin an eight-week series on the book of Exodus. It's one of the most exciting books in the Bible. It's full of drama and action. Uh, a wonderful story of intrigue and suspense. Uh, it's got heroes and villains. It's got leaders and rulers and advisors and slaves. Uh, there's plagues, there's death, there's oppression, tragedy, rebellion, there's miraculous rescue, there's provision. There's so much to notice. There are so many fascinating details. But here's what I want you to notice. Above everything else, it's a story about God. From start to finish, he is the main actor, he is the prime mover. This is the history of his story. In fact, the whole reason God planned these events and then made them happen was so that people would recognise him, that they'd see him, see him and appreciate him. Israel, Pharaoh, the Egyptians and us too as we read millennia later. Here's what God says to Pharaoh in chapter 9, verse 16. I think maybe my remote's not working still. Uh, okay, there we are. Thank you very much. Here's what God said to Pharaoh, chapter 9, verse 16. But I've raised you, Pharaoh, up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God could have done things very differently. He could have done things far quicker and more simply with less trouble and tragedy. But he did it this way so that people would recognise his power, would proclaim his uniqueness everywhere. So let's not forget that. In the midst of all the detail, in all the characters and the plot twists and turns, don't miss this main character. Make sure we notice what he's doing and that we trust him and that we tell out his name. Well, with, with that said, let's begin. The story of Exodus, it actually begins with a backstory. Uh, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 1, they remind us that we're actually beginning this story partway through. We need to catch up. We need to find out what the backstory is. Chapter 1 was actually the, the whole book of Genesis. And it's about how God takes one man, Abraham, promises to bless him to give him a huge family who will in turn bless the world and, and then he's going to give them a land to live in. Uh, eventually, Abraham becomes the father of Isaac, who becomes the father of Jacob, who's also called Israel. And he in turn becomes the father of all those names that you can see there in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, the 12 sons of Israel, uh, including Joseph, who we're told rises to be second in charge in all of Egypt. In the book of Genesis, we're reminded here, at the start of Exodus, it finishes with them all in Egypt, safe from a worldwide famine. Well, verse 6, uh, Exodus chapter 1, it rather unceremoniously cuts the story short. They all died. Oh, okay, right, back up to speed. we jump forward, they all died. And then verse 7 brings things up to date. But the Israelites were fruitful and in multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Here's the point of these first seven verses. God promised to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, and that's what he's doing. From one man, he's produced a family that is exceedingly numerous. 
God's not even named yet. But he's right there. He's there in the background. Especially if you've been paying attention to what has come before the story of Exodus, if you've read the book of Genesis. Uh, Because we're reminded that he is the God who promises. He's the God who makes a covenant. But there's something else an attentive reader will notice here in these first few verses because there's an an even deeper backstory. Uh, This God who's in the background is not just the God who promises, who makes covenant. He's the God who creates. Back in Genesis chapter 1, when God created people, when he made them male and female, this is what he said to them. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And that's exactly what's happening here in Egypt in verse 7. The Israelites are fruitful. They're increased in number and the earth is filled with them. Those same four words from Genesis 1 in yellow are repeated in Exodus 1, also in yellow there, just to make it easier for you to see them. This deeper backstory is that God created people to multiply and be fruitful and to fill the earth, and that's what they're doing. The God who spoke the universe into existence is at work right here in Egypt, blessing and growing his people. Now, we're only seven verses in, but our story begins finally in verse 8. And this blessing is threatened. A new king takes the throne. And with him, the policy of favouritism towards Joseph's people ends. He breaks the promises made, to his forefather, uh, made by his forefather. Uh, this new king is threatened by God's blessing of fruitfulness to his people, to the Israelites. And so verse 10, he speaks to his advisers... He says, let's deal shrewdly with them or else they'll become a threat. They'll rise up and take over. If we do nothing, they'll join our enemies and then they'll leave the country, which ironically is what happens. They do leave the country. And that marks the beginning of a contest between the God who keeps promises and the king who breaks promises. And the Hebrews are the prize to the winner. Verse 11, the king forces them into slave labour. But verse 12, the more he oppressed them, the more they multiplied. Pharaoh's shrewdness and evil are no match for God's blessing and power. Verse 15, forced labour doesn't work. So how about selective genocide? He commands the Hebrew midwives who deliver the babies to kill any boys who are born but keep the girls. In verse 17, we meet the first of many women rescuers, female rescuers in these verses. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and didn't do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and he asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Despite the risk to their own lives, these women feared God more than the king. And I love their explanation. Hebrew women are so blessed. They're so fruitful. Babies are just born before we even get there. Once again, Pharaoh's shrewdness is no match for God's wisdom. 
Uh, the midwives' action produces two direct results. Firstly, verse 20, God blessed their faithfulness and the population continues to grow and even the midwives themselves have children. Uh, the second result, verse 22, is that Pharaoh intensifies the genocide. The secret strategy now becomes public policy. Every Egyptian gets conscripted as an agent of the state. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that's born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is more than just the communist state reporting people. This is actually going into homes and every Egyptian can, if you find a baby, take it and drown it. Spies in every neighbourhood. And as chapter 1 ends, we wonder, how will God's plans to bless his people cope with this threat? Well, chapter 2 moves from the general to the specific, from the national to the personal. Every Hebrew family is threatened, but we zoom in on one Hebrew family and its male baby, a very special baby. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we meet a Levite husband and wife. They have a baby boy, they're not named. Despite Pharaoh's plans, he survives. Mum sees that he's fine. Uh, the NIV has, but it's just the word for good. Uh, sees that he's good, so she keeps him secret from the neighbours for three months. That would have been hard, wouldn't it? But verse 3, when he gets perhaps too noisy or too big or people start to get suspicious, the mother gets a papyrus basket. She, she coats it with tar and pitch. She places the baby in it and then hides it in the reeds along the, the banks of the Nile. In verse 4, uh, she posts uh, his big sister to stand guard and she watches from a distance. Two more female rescuers. It's ironic that technically she's obeying Pharaoh. She's thrown Moses into the Nile, just like he commanded, but of course it's so he'll live rather than die. The Nile River that Pharaoh had planned to be the death of boys has become the source of life. And if we look more closely, uh, if we look closely, we can see even more references, uh, hyperlinks back to Genesis. Firstly, when the baby is born, mum sees that he's good. This is the language of creation. Genesis chapter 1, after every day we read, and God saw that it was good. Just what the, ba the mum does with the baby. Just as God created the world, I think the point is we're meant to recognise that he's at work creating here. He's creating a new nation. He's beginning with this boy who's good. But there are more hints, more hyperlinks. The basket that she uses, the word in Hebrew that uh, is used here for basket is tavah. And it's only used in one other place, in the story of Noah, where it's translated as ark. She places the baby in an ark, coats it with pitch and tar, just what Moses, uh, sorry, just what Noah did with his ark. What's the point? I think we're meant to notice it. Uh, it shows that God is at work here, even if it's not obvious. The same God who made a covenant with Noah and saved him, he's going to do the same thing here. He's in the background, 
but his saving, his creating power, it's still at work. As readers, we're meant to be sensitive to these little cues. Uh, Keep looking for God's hand, the author is saying. Look for him in the story, but look for him in your lives as well. Because that's the way it is for us as well. God is not always obvious in his work, but it doesn't mean he's not working. The same God who created and promised and saved in obvious, miraculous ways, he's still at work in your life. He's there in the background, even if you can't see him. We just need to look and trust. But back to our story. What does the sister see from her secret hideout? Verse 5. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river for help, uh, for, for a dip. She comes down to the river for a dip. She's in the river, as she's washing, she sort of sees the reeds from a, a different angle and, and she notices this basket peeking out from the, among the reeds. It's, if you were standing on the bank, you couldn't see it, but it's sort of there from the water, she can see it. She directs her slave girl, who's on the river bank, to, to go in and fetch it. Uh, she goes down, she fetches it, she brings it up and uh, when she opens it, she sees the crying baby and we're told she feels compassion for it. She works out it's a Hebrew baby, either by the look of the baby or the fact, just the circumstances, that it's hidden. Now, I just want you to stop for a moment and imagine this is the first time you've heard this story. And I want you to feel the suspense going to happen to this baby, this baby who's good? Will he end up like other Hebrew babies and drown? Surely that's the most obvious thing that's going to happen. This is Pharaoh's daughter. She's going to do what her father commands, isn't she? She's right there in the river. It'll be as easy as anything to just pick him up. But just at that moment, his sister jumps out from her hiding place. Verse 7. Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? And of course she's got the perfect Hebrew woman in mind, his own mother. And Pharaoh thinks he's being shrewd. But God's people are being far smarter. Pharaoh's daughter agrees. The boy is raised by his own mum and she even gets paid for it. And then when he grows up, he's given the name Moses. This is the first mention of his name. And he's taken into the royal family and receives all the privilege and education that goes with it. And Pharaoh's daughter becomes one more female rescuer. That makes five so far, and we're only halfway through chapter 2. Well, next up, verse 11, Moses himself becomes a rescuer. So this section is all about rescuers. Uh, We see two rescues from Moses, although the first attempt is, let's be honest, it's more failure than success. Uh, We jump forward many years, something like 40 years. Uh, He's now grown up. On the outside, he he looks Egyptian, but on the inside, he feels a Hebrew. Verse 11, he goes out to the Hebrew district. He sees their slavery. He sees, in particular, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Uh, we talked about this on Friday night. What were his options? Uh, uh, you know, could he have, at, at our home group? Uh, he didn't have to kill him, did he? Uh, there were probably lots of other things he could have done and still helped. Uh, 
but he doesn't. He, he chooses whose side he's going to be on. He decides he's on the Hebrew side. He looks around to make sure no one's watching. And then he kills the Egyptian and hides his body in the sand. But he has been seen. Maybe it's by the victim of the assault or maybe it's by another eyewitness. But word gets out. How do we know? Well, verse 13, he goes out again the next day. And this time he sees two Hebrews fighting. He steps in to break up the fight. And one of them says to him in verse 14, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? You can imagine Moses' reaction. He realises he's been seen. He realises he's in trouble. There'll be consequences. And rightly, he's scared of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hears of it, tries to kill him. Pharaoh, uh, Moses flees to Midian, a neighbouring country. It's out in the desert. And this is where we see his second rescue. Sometime later, it, the story reads as if he immediately travels from Egypt and sits down by the well, but it could be sometime later. This is one event that happens while he's in Midian. He sits down by a well, verse 16, seven sisters arrive. You can just imagine it, can't you? I, I think of that old Western movies, seven brides for seven sons. Yeah, but you, there's only one son here and we've got the seven daughters, seven sisters arriving, and they've got their flocks and they need to draw water. But then a competing group of shepherds arrive and they start to drive the girls and their flocks away. But gallant Moses jumps up and single-handedly he comes to the rescue. Uh, and then, for good measure, he's not just brave, but he's gallant. He, he draws water from the well for the animals as well. He's a gentleman as well as a saviour. Well, the girls return home and they tell Dad how this Egyptian rescued them. Uh, he wants to know, Dad wants to know why they left him there and didn't invite him back for a meal. So verse 21, Moses is fetched back from the well where he's been waiting, he's given a feed, he's given somewhere to stay and before long he's given a wife, Zipporah. And then verse 22, she gives him a son. Rescue number two turns out significantly better than rescue number one. And that's where we stop and rule a line under Moses and we leave Moses there for the moment. But what's been happening back in Egypt? Well, verse 23 draws our attention back there. We're told that many years pass, one king dies, another one comes to power, but not much changes for the Hebrews. We're told the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. I think this is a summary of what they did all through that long period. They were groaning. They were crying out to help for God and their cry went up to God. But nothing happened. So what will God do? He's hardly appeared at all in the story so far in, in two whole chapters. Many years have gone by and the people are still suffering and they're still groaning. But if we've been paying attention, if we've made the connections back to Genesis that the author wants us to make, back to creation, back to Noah, to Abraham, to the patriarchs, we should know what's coming. 
If God has created people who achieve his creative purposes, who multiply and fill the earth, then he won't let his creative purposes be stopped. If God's promised to bless his people, then he'll keep his promise. If God saved Noah in an ark through water, then he will save his people now. If God has raised up human rescuers who can achieve his plans, then we can trust that he will rescue. He will do the same when his people cry out to him, even if it takes years. And that's what happens. Verse 24, God makes a triumphant entrance. Uh, Verse 24, God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, or God saw the Israelites, and was concerned about them. It literally says he knew them. Despite the years that passed, despite it seeming like their cries were unanswered, despite the suffering, he's not deaf. He hears. And he hasn't forgotten. He remembers. He's promised and he will do it. And he's not blind. He sees. He knows. Uh, When it uses the word know, it's more than an intellectual This is a relational word in Hebrew, to know. He's not just aware, he's intimately committed. He feels compassion, which is how the NIV gets, was concerned. We'll we'll see how that works itself out in the weeks to come, how, how God acts as a result of his concern. But he does have a timetable that he's working to, and his people just need to trust him. This is the God that we know. Whatever our situation is, whatever our slavery, whatever our groaning and cries, even if it has gone on for many years as it did for the Hebrews, we can be sure here that God hears and remembers and sees and cares. He may answer quickly or it may be slow like it is here in Exodus during that long period. He may deliver people miraculously, like he does here in Exodus. People I know have certainly experienced miraculous rescue, healing and provision and protection and deliverance. But let's be real. Uh, Most of the time, God won't do it the way he does in Exodus for us. Because that's the point of Exodus. The point of Exodus is that this is miraculous and extraordinary and not the way things normally happen so that God would be glorified. You see, most of the time, the experience of God's people is that we endure and we hope and we cry out to God. That's our normal experience. We're no less likely to get sick or to suffer or to be poor. We're just as likely to be disappointed with life. Our kids will still make dumb decisions like our neighbours and our hearts will break for them. But God hears and sees and remembers and knows. He will rescue, He will answer. He may give us what we pray for or he may have a different plan. 
He may deliver us in this life or he may not. He will certainly deliver us from the slavery of our sin, from its daily power, from its eternal consequences. You can be sure of that. That slavery he will definitely deliver you from. He will certainly redeem us through the payment of the righteousness of Jesus in our place. And he will certainly bring us into an eternal home with him forever. That language of saving or rescuing, it gets borrowed so often uh, in the New Testament and it's mostly coming from here, from the book of Exodus. Uh, One place where it does that uh, is Titus chapter 3 verse 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through, Christ, through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's what God's done for us if we're Christian. We've been saved, washed, reborn, renewed. We have Jesus. We're heirs. There are so many wonderful blessings for in, that, uh, in those truths. And yet we still cry out. We still suffer. Some of you are suffering now. So what can we do as we wait for that, as we wait for deliverance? Well, Paul tells us as we wait, we're to work out our salvation. We've been saved gloriously, but we're to work out our salvation. Now, that means all sorts of things practically about living the Christian life. But here's one way that I think comes from these chapters of Exodus about how we can work out our salvation. Let's follow the example of the two midwives. I wonder if that's why they're actually named in this story. Moses' parents aren't named. We don't know what Moses' Hebrew name is. He only gets his name, Moses, right at the end. Most of the characters, Pharaoh's not named. Most of the characters are not named at all, but the two midwives are. Anyone remember their names? Shifra and Pua. There you go. They're named. I think it's so that we notice them, that we imitate them. They risked their lives to save others. We're specifically told they feared God. They didn't fear Pharaoh. Well, not as much as they feared God. They demonstrated their faith with courageous, costly compassion. Courageous, costly compassion. Uh, They did it as they waited for God's salvation. And they actually lived out God's saving purposes for those around them with their courageous, costly compassion. So how might we imitate uh, those two midwives? Well, here's one idea. Why not come to the Justice and Mercy workshop that Corrine's running next Sunday? Uh, it's about what it might mean for us to be the hands and feet for, of God who saves people for the people around us here in Ashfield, in our neighbourhoods. 
Can we be like God to the community around us? Can we see and hear and care and save as we show that courageous, costly compassion? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, how we've seen you and uh, we pray each week that you will help us to see you, the one who is faithful. Uh, help us to trust you despite appearances, despite uh, time going on. Uh, we thank you for the salvation that you do give us in Jesus. Uh, that is our ultimate salvation and we rejoice in that. Uh, and we pray that you would help us to uh, be at work uh, with compassion for those around us, that we might save them from various situations. Uh, we pray that those, as we live out, as we work out our salvation, uh, that you might be glorified and that people would recognise and honour you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.